the video clips we watched um, represent two totally different things. The first video clip, we see God dealing with sin in a very harsh way. Purge. There was death as a result of those who sinned. And then the second clip, we see God dealing with sin in a more merciful way. So the question I want to address today is which is really more of a true representation of the heart of God? Because it's kind of confusing sometimes to Christians and non-Christians alike. Are we really sinners in the hands of an angry God? Or are we, you know, dealing with a God who's full of compassion and mercy? You know, sometimes we can have daisy faith. You know, we think sometimes today God loves me. He loves me not. Sometimes I'm blessed. Sometimes I'm cursed. You know, it can be confusing. But I think the key to understanding God's heart lies in understanding the covenants that he's made with man throughout Scripture. And so today what we're going to endeavor to do is is examine those covenants and see how they can show us something about the heart of the Father. Okay, But first I want to lay a little um, foundation and, and talk about why this is important. Because I think the way we view God and his heart towards us is fundamental and foundational to our relationship with him. If we view God as an angry God who is um, really re- you know, more willing to punish than to bless, it makes us fearful in approaching God. It makes it difficult for us to trust him. You know? And so we, get, we really have to clarify this issue in our hearts. And so um, it's something that the children of Israel wrestled with when they came out of Egypt. You think about it. All the miracles that God worked through the plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, it was a, quite a display of God's power on behalf of them. And yet, when they got in the wilderness, they would encounter some hardships or some troubles. And first thing they would say is, you know, Moses, why have you brought us out here? Could God not have just killed us in Egypt? You brought it, God bring us out into the wilderness to kill us? So they didn't quite get it. You know, and we can do the same thing sometimes. You know, did God love us? One minute he shows it by his miracles, and the next minute he's brought us to the wilderness to kill us. So it, we can kind of get whiplash, if you will, because we're one minute thinking, hey, God's blessing, and the next minute maybe he's not blessing. So it's, a, it's not an issue that is new to the heart of man to deal with. But hermeneutics is something that we have to kind of talk about for a moment. Hermeneutic, hermeneutic is Greek for meaning to interpret, okay? Uh, when I was a new believer, I hear these ministers come, and they all would mention hermeneutics, you know, hermeneutics. And I, I asked my roommate one time, I said, who is this Herman guy that all these ministers keep talking about? This hermeneutics, I said, I don't know who he is, but they all seem to know him, <laughs> you know, so hermeneutics. But basically, hermeneutics is a way of interpreting Scripture. And many scholars agree that the most accurate way to interpret Scripture is called historical contextual hermeneutics. And basically, the foundation of that is you have to approach Scripture with two questions. The first question is, what did it mean to the author when he wrote it? And the second question is, what did it mean to the people who heard it? And so, for example, when first century believers read read, read the book of Revelation and they read about an eagle because America didn't exist, they didn't interpret it as being um, America. So from this standpoint, that couldn't be the interpretation of the Scripture. So that's kind of the, the foundation. So the challenge we have is we live in a Western culture thousands of years removed from 
the culture that the scriptures were written in. There was an ancient Middle Eastern culture where it's very different, and understanding the customs and the histories of those cultures and those people is critical to understanding oftentimes uh, the meaning of scripture. And so, so it is when it comes to um, understanding God's heart through the covenants. You know, um, we use the term Kentuckiana in this area. We all know what that means. We were raised here or we live here now. But if you went to Arizona or anywhere else and mentioned that term, people, they don't get it. Again, there's, there's, some, there's, there's some loss of meaning because not living in the area, not understanding our culture. So let's dive in and let's talk about covenants. What is a covenant? You know, we all think of a covenant and we think of something that is like a contract. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, two parties made a covenant, and what they would do, they would sign it, and they would make it legally binding. Then over the course of that covenant agreement, the two parties would get together and write what they call the canon. And the canon was the history of how the two parties entered the covenant and they walked out that covenant. That canon would include poetry, music, art, culture. Basically, it became an entire body of literature um, surrounding that covenant. And covenants oftentimes were, were sealed by sacrificing an animal or in the eating of a covenantal meal. And in Scripture, we see the word says covenant, and we think of one thing, kind of like a contract. Okay? But in the ancient world, there were more than one type of covenant that was common. Okay? And I want to talk about those for a minute. And the first one is a grant covenant. And the grant covenant was when a greater person came to, into covenant with a lesser person, and the greater person took on all the obligations. The greater person took on all the responsibilities of the co covenant, and the lesser person, all they had to do was receive the benefits. So like, it's like the rich uncle who calls me up and says, hey, Tom, uh, you know what? You don't have to do anything. It's not depending on your grades or anything. You know what? I'm giving you X amount of dollars a month. I'm going to buy you a car or a home. Just receive it. I'm not requiring it. That's a grant covenant, okay? Second kind of covenant that was common back then is one that we can relate to a little bit more. It's called the, kins the kinship covenant. Okay, this is a, part, a covenant that was entered into by two people who were more equal in status or in, or in terms, okay? Um, they divided a small list of obligations amongst each other. This is something more similar to a marriage. Uh, and the kinsmanship covenant was also referred to as a, a parity covenant because there was more parity between the two people who entered it. So again, small list of obligations, they both divided them up, and they, they lived out those obligations together. And then the last one is a vassal covenant, okay? A vassal covenant is when a greater person entered a covenant with a lesser person based on the greater person's ability to destroy the lesser. And this was common when kings conquered a nation. They would go in and say, okay, I will spare your lives, but you're going to be servants, you're going to pay taxes, you're going to... They just set all these huge lists of obligations on the lesser party because they alone held the power in that, in that relationship. So um, a vassal covenant was not the one that I would volunteer for if I had my choice of these type of covenants. These are covenants were all often established through various types of ceremonies, like a cutting ceremony, which we see in Scripture. A salt covenant was another way of sealing a covenant. And so when we see covenant, when we read covenant in Scripture, we just think one thing, kind of like the, the kinsmanship covenant. Like a, but understanding that there are different types of covenants 
helps us when we go to Scripture, begin to examine the covenant that God made with man. So in Scripture, there were five major covenants that God made with man, and I want to look at those today. The first one is one that God made with Noah. In Genesis 9, 9 through 11, God made a covenant with Noah. Of course, we know that one. God made a covenant, promised that he was not going to destroy the earth anymore with a flood. Now, to us today, that probably seems like a covenant that doesn't have great significance because, you know, we know it's going to rain, it's not going to flood. But to Noah and his family, that covenant meant a lot. You figure it's never rained up until that time when the flood was poured out. So guess what happened the first time it rained after the flood? They were probably a little nervous. You know, I would probably be a little nervous um, about that flood. So, about the rain. So, that one is probably to us not as significant, but to Noah, very important. The second covenant was one that God made with Abram, or Abraham, as we know him today. And Abraham's covenant was a little bit more complicated. It was not just one place in Scripture you can go to. The several places that God first spoke to Abraham and then later confirmed the covenant. In Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abram, and it, it were five promises that God made. He said, first, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Anyone who curses you will be cursed. And all your offspring will be a blessing unto the whole world. So those were the promises he made. Then in Genesis 15, God actually made the covenant with Abram. In Genesis 17, God confirmed the covenant by changing Abram's name to Abraham. Um, and, then, and he also introduced circumcision at that time. So that's when God confirmed the covenant. In Genesis 22, God finalized the confirmation through the test of Abraham with Isaac, when he had I, when Abraham take Isaac to the mountain and have him uh, prepare to sacrifice Isaac, that was a final confirmation of the covenant. And so that covenant we're a lot more familiar with. We talk about it a lot more, and it's a very significant covenant uh, in Scripture. The third covenant was the covenant that God made with Moses. First given in Exodus 19, and... Um, there's a scholar, his name is Dr. Jonathan Welton, who talks about this covenant, uh, Exodus 19, being a kinsman covenant. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the law was given again, and at that point becoming a vassal covenant. So this, this, is, this is a big one. We, we talk a lot about Moses, about the law. It, it infiltrates even today into our new covenant relationship because it's hard to. It's been hard over over time to separate the two. Some things as simple as love your neighbor as yourself, which was in the law, but Jesus said, "A new commandment I give you to love others as I have loved you." Simple thing, to, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, but we blend the two. We do it all the time, and and so part of that is part of the confusion of. How does God relate to us? What's his heart to us? So as we go along, hopefully we can bring some clarity to some of this. So in Exodus 19, the law was first given. Deuteronomy 5, it was given again to the new generation who was good, ready to go in and possess the promised land. And then while this covenant with Moses was in place, 
God comes to King David and makes him, makes a covenant with King David. Now, God, God promised David this. He said that I'm going to make an everlasting line of kings through you. And so, and David, again, was in the ancestry of the Lord. Jesus came from the house of David. Okay, so when, when God promised David that he would have an everlasting kingdom, um, as far as the priesthood, this is what he was talking about. The final covenant in Scripture is one that we live in today, and it's one that Jesus established, the new covenant. Matthew 1.1 begins with this. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Interesting, because it didn't say the son of Moses. He said the son of David and the son of Abraham. Interesting. Think about those two covenants. Because if you go back and look at the type of covenants that God made with each of these, Noah, Grant Covenant. Remember what we said? God just came down to Noah and said, I'm not requiring you. I'm just going to do this. Abraham, Grant Covenant. He came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm not requiring. Here's all you got to do before I make you. He said, I am picking you out. And he picked him, called him out of a, a pagan culture, a pagan nature, a, a nation, and said, I want you to go and I want you to leave. And I, here's what I'm going to do for you. He didn't require anything. He said, I'm going to do this. It was a grant covenant. Okay, so David uh, and Abraham when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the promises of those two covenants. He was, he was the fulfillment of the eternal line of kings and priests through David, and he was the heir to the promises of Abraham. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in Scripture. But it's interesting, it was the two grant covenants that Jesus came and, and um, talked about the fulfillment of these two covenants. The new covenant is not between the church and God as it was in the old covenant between the nation of Israel and God. The new covenant is between the Father and the Son. And this is why Jesus was not simply the, um, when he was on the cross, he was not hanging there absorbing um, punishment and wrath from God. He was entering into a covenantal relationship by fulfilling um, the will of the Father and taking on something um, to bring us forgiveness. And so what we, and we're going to read this a little bit later in Galatians, is that we see the Father and the Son entering into partnership. The weakness, the problem that man always had with covenant is that man, unless it was a grant covenant where we didn't have any obligations, we were destined to fail. And that's what, what the vassal covenant was. It was one where man could not keep it, destined to fail. So, so God in his love and his mercy has brought something to us that we really can't mess up. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.18 says this, uh, all this is from God who reconciled us together through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So here it says that God is reconciling the world through himself, through the Son, so that we can um, partake in the forgiveness of sins. Okay, As Christians, Again, we're not in covenant with the Father or the Son. We become partakers of the promises of Abraham through faith in Jesus. Okay? Going back to the grant covenant, as God's children, we are receiving those promises through faith 
in Jesus Christ. So when you look at the Old Covenant, we think about the Law of Moses more than any other one because it's talked about the most. You know, when Jesus came, he, had, he, was, he was actually living in the Law, under the Law, the Covenant of Moses. And you think about it, when he showed mercy to the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, even though he was walking in the, in the Law, he was already beginning to demonstrate the spirit of the New Covenant. Okay, he, was, he, he did not, because by the law, she should have been stoned. But Jesus began to show something a little bit different through the spirit um, that he was about to initiate. So, when you look back at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, we've got to ask ourselves, which is really a more accurate representation of the heart of God? And I would say to you today that God has a grant covenant heart. When you, when you look at his example in Scripture, and, and just think about a couple of the major Scriptures that we know. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave, right? He didn't come requiring something of us. He gave. Okay, for God so loved the world, he gave us his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, sounds like a grant covenant, doesn't it? You know, God, we weren't there saying, hey, God, let's make a, a covenant. He came and out of his own love for us. He, he, he loved the world so much. He loved us so much. He came and said, here's what I want to do for you if you can receive it, if you can just have faith to receive it. So... Um, while we were yet sinners, not doing anything worthy to deserve it or make ourselves worthy, he died for us. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace, unmerited favor, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that anyone could boast. Okay? So again, sounds like more like a grant covenant. Sound like a more like a grant heart towards God, okay? So what was the purpose of the law? Why did the law, was the law given? God had already given and promised to Abraham, okay? But yet somewhere in the midst of this, here comes this other covenant that we know as the law. So why? Well, it's pretty plainly spelled out in a passage in the book of Galatians. And it's a lengthy passage, and I'm going to read it, and... Um, but it, it kind of puts all this into perspective. If God's intent was really more towards a grant covenant, then why was the law given? In Galatians 3, it says this, The promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later did not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For, for the inheritance depends on the law, then no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed whom the promise referred to had come. So basically what he's saying is, why was the law given? It was given because of transgression. You think about it. The children of Israel, 400 years in slavery in Egypt, when they came out, they did not know the heart of their father. They didn't know how to, I mean, and, and it showed in the wilderness. 
they got a little stressed. Moses doesn't show up. Let's, make, let's build a calf and let's worship. How do they interact with each other? Paul the Apostle wrote this. He said that I didn't know sin until the law came. And so God is, through the law, creating what he calls a, a schoolmaster, if you will, to teach the nation of Israel um, what, is, what he wants, how to live. You know, he couldn't allow that nation to get slide back into the, like the days of, of Noah because through that nation, the Messiah had to come. So it was a schoolmaster, but it was because of transgressions um, that the law was given. Let's read on. Galatians 3.19 says this, The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. It is the law, therefore. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture was locked up. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was, was our guardian. Again, there was the law, it's our guardian, right? Until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, this, now, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ were clothed, have, have clothed yourselves together with Christ. There is, neither, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise of God. So I think that passage of Scripture sums it up so well. And I think it helps when we understand that the different types of covenants that there were because it really reflects that, hey, here God came to Abraham, established a, a, a grant covenant, Okay, later the law was given, but it was given for a purpose, for a season. But it did not do away with the covenant. It didn't override the covenant that God had first made with Abraham. Jesus came fulfilling the promise of the seed and allowing us to enter into a relationship as children of God. We become heirs of the promise. Okay, so this is a challenge for us because in our world that we live in today, our life experience tells us we have to earn everything. It's all based on our performance. We have to earn it. I mean, it starts when you're a child. Hey, if you do good, you get a star. If you don't, you don't get a star. If you're good enough, if you perform well enough, you might make the team. If you don't, you're out. You know, you do perform well at work. That's how you get your promotions. So life, we live in a world that's based on how I do, my performance. But... That's why it's hard for us to receive the free gifts. You know, go back to the heart of this. If God has given me all things when I enter into salvation through faith in Jesus, as an heir, and all those promises are already mine. They're freely given to me. I didn't have to earn it. Inheritance you don't earn. It's given to you based on your relationship to that person. Okay? So it's challenging for us to not want to work it 
So it's easier, <laughs> it's easier for us to mentally grasp the things under like a vassal covenant where there's, there's a list of obligations that we have to do. Hey, if I'm good enough today, God's blessings flow. If I'm good enough today, hey, I'm really walking in God's favor right now because I, I can really feel it. I remember not too long ago, because this has taken me a couple of years really to get this, this transition in my mind because it was so many things were ingrained in my mind. But I remember something good happened. I remember that thought coming to me, boy, God's really blessing me. And I got convicted. And I said, you know, ooh, what's wrong with that thought? And I really had to pray about it. And what God was showing me was that, you know what? I'm always blessed. It's not just when something good happens. I, I am blessed from the day I'm saved. We walk in a state of blessing. Okay? Because it's not conditional. It's not, hey, I'm being good enough today to earn the blessing. The blessing is always there. And so it's, it's coming to a point of realizing that, hey, God's heart towards us is good. God's not an angry God who Jesus is holding back, who wants to destroy us. God has shown us his heart through these covenants where he has come to the people like Abraham and said, you know what, I love you enough to us. Here's what I want to do for you. He comes to us through Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave. God demonstrated his love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, totally unworthy, he, Christ died for us. And it's through our faith we receive those gifts and those promises and inherit the promises of God. So, you know, hey, God's heart... You know, and this is something that really takes a while to kind of wrap your brain around. But God's heart is good to us. It's good towards us. It's with God who loves us. Is there still accountability? Yes. But you know what? God loves us. And he wants us to know that, hey, it's a safe place in his arms and his children. You know, and, and you know, it's, it's a tough thing for us because of the world we live in. It's all performance-based. It's all about, hey, if I do good, I earn this. But with God... It's the inheritance. And it's a challenge to learn to receive that. You know, we live in a nation that, hey, if somebody does wrong, you know, you go to jail. There's, there's consequences to your behavior. With forgiveness of sins, there can still be consequences. But when it comes to forgiveness of sins, it's like it never happened, Scripture says. When God forgives, he forgets. And that's a hard concept. Sometimes we, somebody sins against us, we want to see a little retribution. You know, hey, we expect something bad. How can they sin and still, okay, I know they've repented, but how can God's blessing still be flowing in their lives? That's because it's an inheritance. It's not based on some vassal agreement, you know. So it's, it's a totally paradigm shift, totally different way of looking at Scripture. You know, it's all about our inheritance as we become believers.